or Ecclesiastes 12, verses 1 through 8. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut, when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low, they are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags itself along or is a burden and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel is broken at the cistern and dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. And we have here a very interesting description of what it looks like to get old and die. But the preacher, Solomon, says, before you get there, verse 1, remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days, before you get to this point where your body is slowly crumbling down and, and you eventually die, while you have the capability and the opportunity, remember your Creator. We don't know when that time will happen. I, I would imagine that most people who have, have begun that work towards the grave, or, or we would consider the aged, the elderly, I would imagine most of them said, it came out of nowhere. I was living, I felt young, one day I could tell my body's a little sore, a little slow, and here I am almost in the grave. We don't know when that day's coming, but the wise man says under the inspiration of the Spirit that our great duty leading up to those days is to remember our Creator, Amen. to think, to meditate, consider God. And so I, the goal for this evening is just that, as it has been, to contemplate God and to close the Sabbath day services with thoughts or meditations on God. Now we will, as always, we're going to turn and we're going to read and we're, consider, we're going to consider texts of Scripture. This is our Sunday school hour, so there's teaching and there's learning. But I, in this study especially, I don't want it to feel like we've spent an, an hour in laborious, taxing, mental work. Sometimes the study of the scriptures is that way. And you, you rack your brain and rack your brain and rack your brain and an hour later maybe you have you, you feel like you've made two steps in your study. And there are other times when you're reading very simple truths and you feel like you're not even working at all. You're just thinking on God. That, that's what I want this to be. We're going to use our minds and our hearts but I'll, I want us to think and consider our God. And, and that might be a good question to, to begin with, is, is if you think about God, what comes into your mind? How do you perceive God? 
what do you imagine his disposition to be generally? Well, here we're going we're gonna to see what kind of a God he is. Chapter 42 is entitled, God is the Savior. God is the Savior. And so I'll read now. He says, We will conclude this study of the doctrine of God with an extensive look at the good news that the king, lawgiver, and judge of the universe is also the Savior. In this chapter, we will consider the God who saves and His plan for our salvation. In the chapters that follow, we will specifically consider the roles of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in our salvation. We will learn that our salvation is the work of the entire Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. So as I said before, we're moving towards the details of what we typically call or refer to as the gospel. But he's letting us know ahead of time we're going to be viewing that from a, a particularly Trinitarian view. And I don't know how much we'll get into this uh, as we move along, but I do want to say from the outset uh, or, or state a principle that might be useful to you as you think about or study the Scriptures. Uh, there is, and, and I think we've mentioned this before. I, think, I know we talked about it in the men's study on Saturdays. There's a doctrine that is called the doctrine of inseparable operations. And the, the summary of that doctrine concerning God is that all of the works of God ad extra, which is just a Latin phrase that means out of himself, all of the works of God out of himself towards his creation are one or are uh, carried out by the whole God. So when God, or I, I could say as we study through this and we will see things that the Father does, specific emphasis on the things that the Son does, specifical emphases on things that the Spirit does, while we study that, we have to remember that really all of the works of God are performed by every person of the Trinity. Why? Because though there are three persons, there is still only one God. So keep that in mind, and, and, and maybe that'll help, maybe it'll, it'll confuse. I hope not. That's not meant to say that there are not particular works attributed to a particular person. That's also included in, in the scriptural revelation. But all of the works of God out of himself coming toward the creature are works of the whole God. God does it. It's not as though the, the, the Father says to the Son and Spirit, you, you guys hang out while I do something. Because there's only one divine essence, only one God. And we see that when he, he opens here, the first heading is the God who saves. The God who saves. Notice it's not the Father who saves or the Son who saves or the Spirit who saves, but the God who saves. There's only one God. That God is the Trinitarian God of Scripture, Father, Son, and Spirit. That's who saves. Reading again. In this section, we will look at the text of Scripture that affirm the saving work of God on behalf of sinful men. Not only will we learn that God is willing to save, but we will also discover that He alone has the power to save. So here, beginning our, our contemplation, our meditation on God, think, God is willing to save. God is willing to save. That's the God of the Bible. God who is willing to save. I think that ought to be great news for you who are here and you're not yet a Christian. Maybe some of you, your children, 
You say, I, I don't know if I'm a Christian yet, or I don't think I'm a Christian yet. And you might wonder, is God willing to save me? When, I, when, I, when, when you think about God, maybe you, you wonder, should I think about God as a God who is willing to save? Listen, you don't have to wonder anymore. The wondering is over. God is willing to save. That's who He is. First, we see that God is Savior by name. Turn to Psalm 17. Psalm 17, I'll read verses 6 and 7. I will call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me, hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. So we see here, God is addressed as, O God, but then He's addressed as, O Savior. Who is God? He is Savior. This word Savior comes from the Hebrew word Yasha. This title may also be translated as Deliverer. Notice that God is the Savior of those who seek refuge in Him. Nowhere in Scripture or in history is there a single record to be found or even a hint or even an idea that someone has ever sought refuge in God and was turned down. Or that anybody ever went to God for refuge or for salvation and they, they walked away with their head sunk low and they said, boy, that was a waste of time. There's no record. No, nothing of the sort. No one has ever said that. Because those who seek refuge and salvation in God find salvation. That's what they find. Those who seek God find God. And they find Him to be Savior. He is the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Let's turn to Isaiah 60. Isaiah 60, I think these things are important for us. And I, I, In meeting with the men yesterday morning, I, I, this information and, and stuff was, was on my mind. And I, I pointed out that sometimes when you, you, you talk to people like us of a, a Calvinistic sort, you might get the idea that God, you, you kind of wonder, does God want to really save anybody? Is He even interested in salvation? Or has he, is He already finished because He saved me? And he, he got finished. No, no. God is a Savior. Isaiah 60, verse 16, God speaking to His people, He says, You shall suck the milk of nations, you shall nurse at the breast of kings, and you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Again, He's called the Savior, the same word that was used before, Yasha. He says, the word redeemer is translated from the Hebrew verb ga'al, which means to buy back or to act as kinsmen. As set forth in Leviticus 25.25 25, and illustrated in the life of Boaz. 
Okay, so think about Boaz and Ruth. We know that story. I was thinking this afternoon. I don't know who names the books of the Bible. We, that book might be better entitled Boaz. The book is, is describing a picture of God and His redemption. But you think about that story, you, you think about Ruth's condition before Boaz, a, a, a widow, with her mother-in-law, who's also a widow, that they are, by, by all accounts, helpless. They can do nothing for themselves. In comes this man, Boaz, who looks upon the lowest state of Ruth with compassion. It was Boaz who said, whose young woman is this? It was Boaz who went to the city gate and initiated the dealings for redemption in that process. And if you, if you notice, the way that that is brought about is he mentions the land... There's this land that is to be inherited from our kinsman Elimelech. Well, who's not going to jump on some, some property? And he could have left it at that. Well, there's land. Knowing in the back of his mind, this guy's going to get two widows. But I'm going, to, I'm going to stay quiet. You want the land, right? Take the, but he doesn't. He says, there's land. The guy jumps up. I'll take the land. Well, just so you know, you also get these two widows. He didn't have to say that, but he did. Almost like he was, he was warding off the man, pushing him back so that he could come in and be the Redeemer. Now that was a man, a human being, a sinner like us. If Boaz, a man, a sinner, would do this, how much greater in compassion and desire and willingness should we imagine God to be? A man did that. Do you think God is less compassionate than a man? Of course not. Boaz was only acting according to the law written by God. We could say God wrote the book on kinsman redemption. Boaz was just following the rules. That was God's idea. Because it's who he is. He is Redeemer, Savior. Let's look at the New Testament, Titus 3. Titus 3, verse, I'm going to read verses 3 through 6 just so we can be reminded of, of what we were before God saved us. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but, because, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. He's called God our Savior. You don't have to turn to this one, but the other one is 1 Timothy 2, 3 and 4. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God, our Savior. That's who He is. He's the Savior. It's His title. It's His name. That word in the New Testament comes from the Greek word soter, which may also be translated as deliverer, rescuer, or preserver. You hear that word soter. When we study salvation, we call it soteriology. It comes from this word, the study of salvation. And the study of salvation is really just a study of the work of God because God is God our Savior. 
This is His name. You can call Him by these titles. When you pray, you can say, Oh, Savior, our Savior, God, our Savior. And He's going to know exactly who you're talking about because it's who He is. Next we see that He is Savior by description. Turn back to Psalm 3. Psalm 3, verse 8. Psalm 3, 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Selah. Now the scholars tell us that Selah is a musical term meaning stop or cease or rest. And the idea in, in, in this word in the Psalms is that we ought to stop and consider and think about that truth that was just said. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation is the Lord's work. Turn to Psalm 37. Psalm 37 verses 39 and 40. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in Him. The note says the idea is that salvation comes from God. It's His prerogative. He alone is able to save or deliver. The reference to the righteous does not point to people whose lives are marked by moral perfection, but those who are trusting and relying upon God and His salvation. The righteous shall live by faith, Habakkuk 2.4. Well, and I would ask, faith in who? Faith in God. That text, the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. Notice it doesn't say that the salvation of the righteous is their righteousness. Nor does it even say the salvation of the righteous is their faith. No, the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. Our faith does not save us. Our faith just clings to the Lord who is Savior. Our salvation comes from God. It's, it's God's character. It's God's activity. We could say that the, the very heart of God gushes forth in salvation. Salvation is from the Lord. Turn to Psalm 68 with me. Psalm 68 verses 19 and 20. Again, a wonderful thought. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Selah. Our God is a God of salvation. And to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. Again, God is our salvation. Salvation is not merely deliverance from something, but it is also a deliverance unto something else, a salvation to. And that something is God. 
Salvation is being delivered from enmity and separation with God or from God to God Himself, reconciliation, nearness, friendship. God is our salvation and God is a God of salvation. It's who He is. I wrote in my notes here, I don't know if this is technically theologically accurate, but salvation, we could say, is essential to God. It's who He is. And we'll often hear people say that God would still be God if He had saved none, and that is true, and I understand the sentiment. The issue is that that God who potentially saves none is just that. He's, he's a God in potentia. He's a God of the imagination. Because the only God who is, is this God who is salvation. We, we don't know of another God. Maybe, maybe God Himself could imagine another God. But there's no other God that we know of, 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 of that's uh, revealed. And I'm not saying that there are other gods. You know what I'm saying. We can't imagine this. That, that God doesn't exist who doesn't save. There's one God, and He is salvation. He saves. Let's turn to Psalm 74. Psalm 74, 12. Yet God, my King, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. That word salvation or deliverance comes from the Hebrew word Yeshua which may also be translated salvation, as it is in the ESV. Some of you, you know that Hebrew word, Yeshua, is equivalent to what we would say is Joshua, the name Joshua, or which would translate to the same name as Jesus in the Hebrew tongue, the Hebrew language. I will say this just by maybe a word of caution or warning. If you do run into professing Christians who seem very intent and almost unwavering in their use of the name Yeshua rather than Jesus. There's probably a little bit of uh, Hebrew roots uh, superstition about the Hebrew language and things with those people. Um, it's okay to call him Jesus. Um, so anyway, but but that's where that comes from, the, the name deliverer or deliverance. Turn to Jonah chapter 2. Jonah 2, 9. Jonah says, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the note reads, because of Jonah's rebellion against God's call, he was languishing in the belly of a great fish at the bottom of the sea. His salvation was a human impossibility. God alone could save him. The same may be said of every man. Jonah couldn't save himself. Jonah couldn't phone a friend or text anybody to get help. There was nobody to help but God alone. And that's our condition in sin. We can't help ourselves. We can't call somebody to help us. We have to call out to God. Now, 
based on what we've read, you imagine, oh, I'm a sinner, I'm going to call out to God. Is God going to look at the caller ID and say, oh, it's him, I'm not going to answer. That's just another sinner who wants to be saved and I don't have time today. Of course not. No, that's what he does. He, the scriptures say he waits to have compassion and mercy. That, that's what he's there to do, we could say. He's God. He is Savior. It's who he is. God throughout the scriptures is described as the God who saves and the God of salvation and the only one from whom salvation can and will come. The whole Bible is the story of God the Savior. God the Savior. Next we see that it's, it is his exclusive prerogative to be Savior. Turn with me to Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43.11 I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. Besides God, there is no Savior. And then flip the page to 45, Isaiah 45 verse 21, a page or two. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it from of old? Was it not I the Lord? And there is no other God besides me. A righteous God and a Savior. There is none beside, besides me. God is not one of many saviors. God is not a part of a team of saviors. He's not the highest rated and most successful Savior. He doesn't merely have the best record for salvations. He's the only Savior. No one else is in the running. There are no other options besides God. These texts are extremely important, he says, for two reasons. They demonstrate that salvation is exclusively the work of God, and thereby they prove, number two, that the, they prove the deity of Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, Christ is called Savior and even the Savior of the world. If Christ is not God in the fullest sense of the term, then He cannot be Savior. By extension, if Christ is Savior, then He must be truly God. There's only one Savior. There's only one God. And, and Christ gets all of those titles and descriptions applied to Himself. Now, Isaiah 45, 22 the question is, what is God's call to all men? How should all men respond? What part do we as Christians have in this call to the ends of the earth? Isaiah 45, 22. Remember, he just said, there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Think about that. This is what God says to the ends of the earth. Turn to me. He doesn't say, hey, there's only one way of salvation. Good luck finding it. No, He doesn't say that. He says, there's no other way besides me. But He doesn't leave us in despair. He says, there's no other Savior besides me. Turn to me. Turn to me. This is exactly what Christ did in Matthew when He said, uh, 
the Father has hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them unto babes. Right? And then he says, come to me. No one knows the Father except the Son. And those to whom the Son choose, chooses to reveal Him, come to me. He, he's, he, in these statements, He's not closing the door. He's not saying, Let, let's see how they fare. I'm going to so, so exclusivize it and then hide it that no one can know. And it's going to be a, a game for God to sit and to watch as sinners scurry about trying to find salvation. Never. He says, there's only one way, there's only one way, only one God, only one Savior. Here I am. Come, come, come. That's the God of the Bible. And obviously our role is to take that invitation of God to the ends of the earth. We can, with scriptural warrant, go anywhere to any person or any people on the face of the planet we can walk up to them, look at them in their face, and say, God told me to tell you to turn to Him. Now, I don't think that's controversial here. There are, there are professing Christian denominations that believe you, you ought not do that, that you can't do that, that we, that we don't have the right to give what, what is called the free offer of the gospel. I believe God says... To the ends of the earth, turn to me. And we can go to the ends of the earth and say, God said, turn to him. That's our role. God's will, God's command, God's desire is that you turn to him and be saved. That's who he is. All right, let's turn to 2 Chronicles 16. Or First Chronicles, rather. First Chronicles 16. We're still thinking through our response to all of this. First Chronicles 16, 23 and 24. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. You don't have to turn to this one. I'll just read it. It's very similar. Psalm 96, 1 to 3. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. The, these truths of God as Savior should fill our minds and then our hearts and then our mouths with joyful praise. There should not be a day that goes by when you are not at least tempted to break out in a song about the salvation of God. You don't have to admit it to me, but I hope, I secretly hope and wish that everyone in here at some point, maybe it's in private, is just belting out songs of praise to God. You don't have to admit it, but I hope that that's you. Because this is what God commands us to do. Sing. God is worthy of our songs. God is Savior. The next heading is God's plan of salvation. God's plan of salvation. We'll begin in 1 Peter chapter 1.
I'll read this introduction. In, in the previous section, we learned that God is the God who saves. We will now learn that God's work of salvation was determined and designed before man ever fell, even before the foundation of the world. 1 Peter 1.20, speaking of Christ, says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in, these, in the last times for the sake of you. Christ, the Son of God, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. And then he explains this word, foreknown. It comes from the Greek word, prognosko, pro, meaning before, and gnosko, meaning to know, to know before. In the Scriptures, the word denotes more than mere knowledge. It also denotes choice, obviously, because God knows everything. There's, being omniscient, there, there would be no reason to, to merely state that God knew a thing or a person beforehand. The term must mean that He has something more than just a knowledge of, of a fact. It refers to a special, exclusive, even covenantal acquaintance. When you think of knowing someone, think of Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and gave birth to a son. A special knowledge. To, in this sense, to, to foreknow is to have an intimate, covenantal, loving knowledge of someone or something beforehand. And that's what it's saying of Christ. Christ was foreknown. The text, he says, proves that before the world was created... The Father had already determined or decreed to send His Son to die for the sins of His people. Furthermore, this text proves that the Father also determined the exact time He would send Christ. In Galatians 4.4, 4, Paul confirms this truth. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son. The fullness of time. Who says it's the fullness of time? God says it's the fullness of time because He determined when that time would be. All right, let's turn to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have the redemption, have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, I read a little extra there just for the sake of it. While we were away the other week, Christy and I had, were in a competition where we had to memorize, uh, I think it was verses 3 through 10. Most of the teams had eight people. And so they would divide this, this text up amongst the eight people. They just all had to collectively memorize this passage. Well, me and Christy said, we're better than everybody, obviously, and we're smart and we're brilliant, and the kids want to play, and they don't want to sit here. And so the, the two of us actually divided this section up, and it was quite embarrassing how I, I said, oh, yeah, Ephesians, Ephesians 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our... And I had to look at it again. 
passages that you think you, you know, and then you, when you have to say it, you realize you don't know it very well. But anyway, Ephesians 1, 4, he says, teaches us something about God's salvation. When did God choose His people? Well, it says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. The word chose comes from the Greek word eklego, which means to select, elect, or pick out. The word is often used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, with regard to God's unmerited choice of the nation of Israel. We've pointed out most people don't really have a problem with that choice of God, God choosing Israel to be His people. But when you apply it the way it's being used here, the saving work of God, people get a little stirred up. But it's the same idea. The phrase before the foundation of the world refers to the eternal counsels of God before the world was made. So we could say God selected or elected or picked out what? Us before the foundation of the world. That's the way it reads. He chose us. So if we put this with what we saw in 1 Peter, He arranged a Savior in the work of the Son, and then He arranged the salvation of a particular people. In whom did He choose His people, and what does this mean? Well, it says He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That is, in Christ. We, we know that's the language of union. He chose us in union with Christ. So election, or to be elect in this sense, is to be the object of God's choice. And, and I, I have trouble really articulating this, but the choice coincides with or is in direct relationship to the work of the Son. As God... The Father in eternity um, sets apart or uh, declares His Son will be the mediator of a people. Along with that fact, the other side of that is the people for whom He will mediate. That's, that, that they go together. It's an election in this work of the Son. And He asks in the note there, how could God choose a people like us who are morally corrupt and guilty of innumerable sins? He chose us in the Son, and in light of His work on Calvary, before the foundation of the world, God both chose His people and determined the way in which He would reconcile them to Himself. Question three, for what purpose did God choose His people? The text again, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. God's election of His people in Christ before the foundation of the world has a moral aim or goal that we would be holy and blameless before Him. And then he points out we're already these things in Christ positionally. We have a, a positional uh, holiness. However, it's God's desire that we become holy and blameless in our daily lives. That's practically, so it has to be worked out. Now, many people who will oppose the doctrine of election, they would see this text and they would say, well, see right here, God didn't choose who would be saved. He just chose the end to which we would be saved. He chose what we would be saved to, holiness and blamelessness. Well, I, I would respond. First, there is no holiness or blamelessness apart from salvation. They go together. To be chosen to the one is to be chosen to the other. But secondly, the text reads, He chose us. What did He choose? Us. To an end that we, the ones He chose, would be holy and blameless. God chose 
who would be saved, and He chose the end of that salvation, which is holiness and blamelessness before Him forever. What does Ephesians 1.5 teach us about God's plan of salvation? To what did God predestine every believer? Well, it says in love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. So He predestined us for sonship. This is a part of God's eternal plan. He explains that word predestined, proorizo. The, the, the language is, you can hear the word horizon there. He, he declared the, the end, the horizon from the beginning. He says, before the foundation of the world, God predetermined that His chosen people would be adopted as His sons and daughters and be His heirs. We could say that sonship through the indwelling spirit of adoption is, that's what salvation is, to be, to be made a son of God through the indwelling spirit. That's what He chose us to. Again, to say that God chose us to these ends, but He didn't choose who would be the recipients of this salvation is to resort to logical absurdity in order to protect the supposed autonomous free will of man. Arguing and wrangling your way out of the text, what it clearly says, in all of its glory and beauty, in order to say, I chose. It was my decision. That doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make any sense. He says, through whom have we received this adoption? He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Christ is the perfect, eternal Son of God's love. We have received the Spirit, who is the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of adoption. And so through union with Christ, we enjoy the title and privileges of sonship. Think that this is God's plan from eternity. I'm going to take these people. I'm going to make them holy. I'm going to make them my sons. I'm going to adopt them into my family. What was God's motivation for adopting us? Well, depending on where you put the, the punctuation, the ESV starts with in love, puts the period before in love. In love He predestined us. So we could say that love was a part of God's motivation. If you don't take that reading... We can find it elsewhere. But at the end of the verse, according to the purpose of His will or His kind intention was God's motivation. He says the phrase kind intention is translated from the single Greek word eudokia, which literally means good pleasure. Kind intention of His will can be translated purpose of His will as we have in the, the ESV or pleasure of His will, NET. God loved us because He is love and because He determined to set His love upon us. God adopted us because it pleased Him to do so. Down to verse 6, Why did God design and decree our salvation? To the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. He did all of this so that His grace would be praised. The ultimate purpose, He says, for which God saved us is His own glory. His work of salvation is a demonstration of His glorious grace and will result in ceaseless praise from men and angels throughout all eternity. Let's turn quickly to Romans 8. Romans 8, verses 29 and 30. I won't read all of the notes here. 
For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. So we have several points to be made. Again, I'm just going to skip and hit the A, B, C, D. In verse 29, we see that God foreknew us, those whom He foreknew. We've already seen that word, loved beforehand. We could, we could say foreloved if we wanted to. Having foreknew us or loved us beforehand, then He predestined us. Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. We've seen that word. So God's love was set upon us, and then in love, He determined our end, our horizon, and the salvation which would bring that end to pass. So we could ask at this point, who was predestined? Those whom God foreknew in eternity. Then that salvation enters into time with the effectual call. Those whom He predestined, He also called. That's the effectual call. He says God chose us and predestined us, and then... He called us at a specific time in our lives through the preaching of the gospel. The effectual call. Who gets called? Those who were predestined to be called. And then in verse 30, God justifies or justified us. Who is justified? Those who were effectually called. And then the end, God glorified. Verse 30. The we get to see God's end goal is, is glorification. We, as we've already seen, perfect, holy, blamelessness in the presence of God, beholding the glory of God for all of eternity, walking backwards through the passage. Who will be glorified? Well, those God justified through faith in His Son. Well, who will be justified? Well, those God called through the preaching of the gospel. Well, who's, who's, who's going to be called? Well, those God predestined to be saved. Well, who did God predestine to be saved? Those whom He foreknew. In the end, glorification. That was set forth in the eternal plan of God. We have in the Scriptures a God who in eternity, before there was anything, said, in essence, I'm going to glorify some sinners. I'm going to take some sinners. I'm going to change them nature and all, I'm going to bring them into my presence in holiness and blamelessness and perfection so that they can behold me for all of eternity. I will be their God and they will be my people. God is Savior and He has been so eternally. Even before this salvation entered time, God had already established the plan for which time would exist. Why time? Why creation? Why people? Why history? This, this right here so that God could save a people and bring them to Himself. Praise the praise of His glorious grace. So we see he's, God is Savior by name. He's Savior by description. He's Savior according to His exclusive prerogative. He's Savior by eternal plan and purpose. I'll close with this. Psalm 48, 14. This is God. Our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Let's pray.